1: Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books in Law podcast. Today we are joined by Timothy Sandifer. He's the vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute in Arizona. He has authored a book entitled The Permission Society, How the Ruling Class Turns Our Freedoms into Privileges and What We Can Do About It. This is a re-recording of a previous podcast we had done. So, Tim, we've talked about this book before, but we had some technical difficulties with the first one, and so we're redoing it today for our listeners. Tim, I want to begin by asking you, what is the overall thesis of your book, and then we'll get into the, the details of it.
0: The overall thesis is that uh, in a wide variety of areas of our lives,
1: what was once regarded as a freedom, that is,
0: that we had the right to do something as long as we didn't hurt any other person, is increasingly being regarded as a permission from the government. That is, that we're not allowed to do something until we get some form of government authority.
1: Uh, authorization before we do it. So everything from building permits
0: where you're not allowed to construct something unless you get government permission to gun permits where you can't possess a firearm until you get authority from the government to job permits to – I even have an argument in the book that, uh, that there are restrictions on our ability to take medicine that if you think about it, a prescription is really a government permit that allows you to take medicine. Um, so it's, there's a wide variety of areas of our lives, and then I try to look at what those restrictions on our freedom do to us generally and how we can push back against those restrictions on our freedom.
1: And so that last point I think is important. This is really uh, – not this is not merely a uh, an analysis of the existing um, levels of permission and uh, that we confront in society, but you're, you're making an argument that uh, these – uh, different types of uh, permits uh, need to be reduced or altogether eliminated, right?
0: Yeah, I was I, – I, the book was inspired by some conversations that I had with some friends of mine who were saying you know, every time we talk about permits and we often forget that the root word there is permission, that you're having to ask a government bureaucrat, uh, please, sir, may I do so-and-so? And uh, another friend of mine who's a, an attorney and practices in the realm of the Second Amendment has been arguing that rules that, that apply to freedom of speech ought to apply to the Second Amendment also, and in fact ought to apply to all of our constitutional rights. We protect free speech very strongly, uh, and, and yet we often overlook those same kinds of protections when it comes to other kinds of rights, like gun rights or property rights or freedom of economic freedom and so forth. So there's an old doctrine in the law called prior restraint,
1: for hundreds of years, it has
0: been the, the pride of First Amendment lawyers that the government cannot require you to get permission before you speak. That is the basic rule everybody agrees on. There's other debates about what free speech really means and doesn't mean. But the one thing everybody agrees on is the government cannot require you to get permission before you speak. That's called a prior restraint. That rule dates back to the 17th century. But unfortunately, in all sorts of different areas of our lives, we are required to get permission uh, there are prior restraints on our freedom to start a business, on our freedom to take a job, on the freedom to design a house the way we want to, uh, all sorts of, of restrictions. In fact, in some places, you have to get government permission to trim trees. There are some countries in the world where you have to get permission from the government before you name your children.
1: So the the permission model is pervasive in our lives. And you're primarily concerned with the American context and the Anglo-American Um, history that led to the regime, if you will, that we confront today regarding permission. So could you explain how you see the varieties of activities that we today must seek permission for as their historical antecedents? In other words, what's the historical development of what you've described as this permission society? It's
0: it's kind of a curve, like a bell curve. It starts with you know before the American Revolution and the monarchical society that America lived in when it was a colony,
1: under the under the British Constitution, the the subject was not free until the government gave him freedom, until the king gave him freedom. And if you read like the Magna Carta, for instance,
0: the words, the opening words of the Magna, Magna Carta say, "I, King John, am giving the subjects the following freedoms," and it lists all those freedoms. And what happened in the, in the American Revolution was that that got overturned, that got reversed. And James Madison has this beautiful essay called Charters, where he says that the basic point of the American Revolution is that, uh, that we've reversed that order. He says, in the past, charters of liberty were granted by power, but America has set the precedent of charters of power granted by liberty, meaning that free people give the government power instead of the government giving us our freedom. And that rule particularly is true when it comes to religious freedom under the british constitution of you know, in the 18th century there wasn't religious liberty there was religious toleration there were, that was the rule toleration and toleration meant that you could be uh you could believe in whatever you wanted to believe in but you still had to pay taxes to support the established church and the government was allowing you within certain limits to practice the religion that you wanted to practice and that was very strongly rejected by the American Founding Fathers. They rejected even the word toleration, instead adopting the idea of religious liberty. You are free to practice your religion because because you have that right as a human being, not because the government gives you that right. Unfortunately, in modern times, we've kind of reversed that and we're going back now, I think, toward a situation like we had in the British monarchy, where your freedoms are given to you by the government for its own purposes and on its own terms.
1: So in some ways, um there's this – forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but correct me if I am. Is this kind of a golden age argument? In other words, there was once a golden age of freedom um, that has subsequently been eroded or taken away, and we need to return to that golden age? Or, no, okay. no, definitely not. I'm glad that you put it that way because I've always been very resistant to the
0: kind of golden age mythology that you often find when when libertarian or conservative writers are talking. Um, no, there has never been a golden age. They, the closest thing to a golden age is, you might say, it was sort of a brass age. There, there was a time when rich white men were somewhat freer than they are today, maybe. Uh, but, of course, whole classes of people were excluded from that freedom. And throughout the 20th century especially, I mean throughout American history, but especially through the 20th century, what we've seen is a broadening of freedom to classes of people who were previously excluded. And that's, that's tremendous progress. That is a fantastic thing what i'm what i'm arguing for is is that the golden age lays in, is in the future if we're willing to to take the steps necessary and one of those steps necessary is to abolish this privileged idea of freedom because if the government if, the, if your freedoms are a privilege that the government gives to you, who are, who's going to get those privileges? The privileged, right? The, the people It's the insiders who are going to get that privilege. And that means that minorities and underrepresented groups are going to be the first ones who are excluded from the freedom and opportunity that ought to be everybody's birthright. So, no, I'm, I am, I'm saying that the, the ideas that prevailed during the American Revolution had the core – Principles correct. It's just that large groups of people were excluded from those, and and what we ought to do is everybody ought to enjoy the fruits of those
1: labors. Okay, so let's talk about some of the philosophical underpinnings of this distinction between a right and a privilege. Um, you note the um, utilitarian theorist Jeremy Bentham and uh, Bentham's uh, critique of uh, natural rights and his concern with. Uh, the utility of public policy in terms of the greatest benefit for the greatest number. Can you explain uh, this philosophical division in terms of uh, the roots of distinction between a right and a privilege?
0: Yeah. So Bentham was writing at about the same time as the American revolution. In fact, he wrote a a response to the declaration of independence when it was, uh, when it appeared where he openly rejected it and ridiculed it. And you know, I think that today there are lots of people who, who follow Bentham, particularly um, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was a great admirer of Bentham, and Holmes has inspired a lot of people in the judicial uh, and the legal uh, field to follow Bentham's ideas that natural rights are humbug and that actually what is freedom is when the government gives you the privilege to do something. The, the argument that I put in the book is actually the real magical thinking is Bentham. He's the, he and, the, and his followers are the ones who are engaged in magical thinking because they think that rights are just manufactured out of thin air by government fiat. The government just says you have a right, so you have a right
1: of course, that would just mean that the government could give you a right and take away that right at the same time. It could, it could contradict itself, and all this power comes from the government. What we,
0: what we're, when I ex- exercise my freedom of speech or my, my freedom of choice to, to, as to what meal to have for lunch or something, I'm somehow, I somehow got that freedom from the government. Well, if so, where did it come from? Where did the government get the freedom to give to me in the first place? There's only two answers to that. One is either it got that freedom from me to begin with, and now it's giving it back to me. Well, that can't be right because Bentham rejects the idea that people are basically free. Or the government is just manufacturing this freedom out of thin air. Well, how does it have the authority to do that and I don't? The answer has to be that the government stands at a higher level than me. It's somehow above me. And, it, and that violates the principle of equality that is the basis of our legal and political institutions. That says that these people somehow, they're star-bellied sneeches and I don't have a star on my belly, so they're better than I am in some sort of intrinsic way. And that, to me, is magical thinking. There's no, the, the, the American founders started with a very common sense, logical proposition that there are not some people who are just naturally entitled to rule others. And therefore, when somebody sh- suggests that they have the right to tell me what to do with my life, the burden of proof is on him to, to justify that claim. And until he can justify that claim, then I am free and I have the right to do with my life what I please. That's a very common sense, logical, scientific even way of looking at the world. So people like Bentham and others who thought they were being so skeptical and scientific and and logical and rational, I think they're the ones who are actually engaged in the fantastic, magical thinking. And that those of us who say all people are born free, we're the ones who have the right logical argument on our side.
1: Now, of course, rights have to be recognized by institutions and the people that fill them. And um, in the American context, this has primarily been uh, a development within the court system. Um, And especially at the constitutional level, we have this age-old, at this point, debate regarding the nature of rights and how they're recognized. So. In terms of constitutional jurisprudence, do you – are you making a very particular argument about how the court should approach conceptions of right?
0: Well, I don't do that in this book. I, in my previous book, The Conscience of the Constitution, I did make that kind of an argument. I don't I, – in this book, I'm trying to look at instead different ways in which the doctrines that already exist on the books can, can be broadened. So for example – uh, I have a section in the book where I talk about architectural design review. Design review is a process where an architect designs a house and he goes to the government to get a permit to build it. And the government agents, they, the, the, the city council, they look at the application and say, well, we don't like how it looks. We'd rather that this house be a Tudor style house instead. And the architect has to go back and redesign it as a Tudor house. Well, to my mind, that sort of aesthetic rule is a violation of free speech. Architecture is a form of free speech, just like sculpture is. And nobody can visit a Franklin Wright house and not be impressed by what an artistic statement it is.
1: And I think if the government were to say to Franklin Wright, no, no, you have to design your house to look like a Greek temple instead,
0: that would, I think, plainly violate his right to freedom of expression. So that's the kind of argument I'm trying to make. I'm trying to say that existing doctrines, if they were applied right, would solve a lot of these problems. The Supreme Court has made clear that whenever the government imposes a permit requirement on us, there are three standards it has to meet. The first one is the criteria for getting or being denied the permit. The criteria have to be clear and unambiguous. Typically, they aren't, but that's the rule they're supposed to be. The second one is there has to be a clear deadline within which you'll be granted or denied the permit. That also is violated almost all the time by permitting authorities who have some sort of either a vague rule that says, well, we'll get around to your permit when we get around to it, or an endless series of hearing after hearing after hearing. The third rule is that there has to be an opportunity for real judicial review if you're wrongly denied a permit. And that also is routinely ignored by the agencies at the state and federal level that say, well, if you're denied a permit, you have to go to an administrative hearing instead. You're not, you don't go to real court. You go to an administrative agency hearing.
1: The problem with an administrative agency hearing is the, the judge is a,
0: is works for the administrative agency. The prosecutor is paying the judge. So is, does a citizen really have the opportunity to win? Plus, the ordinary rules of evidence don't even apply in these agency hearings. And there's all sorts of ways that these agency hearings violate people's right to due process of law. So, no, I'm arguing that existing law already has the solution to a lot of these problems if we would just faithfully enforce
1: it. Okay, so – I want to get to administrative agencies in a little bit, but going back to the courts and their role, uh, especially at the constitutional level. Once you constitutionalize something, you seemingly protect it uh, forever, and um, that is not necessarily true. But it's it's difficult to overturn a precedent, and so you've noted these pre-existing rules. What I'm asking about is not so much a constitutional um, theory of, of how doctrine has developed over time, but rather what are the origins of some of these rights? You've already indicated that, there's some, that there are natural rights, but um, we've seen that uh, the Supreme Court can be rather creative and imaginative with uh, conceptions of rights. And so what is the limiting principle for a court –… when it's dealing with right claims, especially in regard to liberty questions that you're addressing in the book regarding permission and the constitutional legitimacy of certain permission regimes?
0: Well, my my answer to that is probably not going to be very satisfying because I reject the – the, the there's, I think today the legal world is looking for clear rules that will say… Judges can go this far and no further, but they're not satisfied with the answer that that's just not the way jurisprudence works. Uh, And let me put it this way. I think that the whole philosophical world, but particularly lawyers, has physics envy in that they want their, their scholarship, they want legal doctrine to be as clear and precise and as black and white and either or as the kind of stuff that you get from physicists the problem is most not even most sciences are like that and especially not law because these are life sciences these are living sciences which by which i mean we're talking about human beings who are living their lives in the messy real world of of the their ordinary concerns and that means that we we would be better served to follow aristotle's old doctrine that we should not look for exact answers to these kinds of questions to begin with, when we talk about these things, we're talking about things that are usually and for the most part true, not things that are always absolutely certain. What that means is prudence plays a bigger role in, in jurisprudence, fittingly enough, than does the sort of precise line-drawing exercises that that question presupposes. So I, my answer to that question is judges are limited by the checks and balances of the Constitution – if a judge abuses his authority, he can be impeached, or he shouldn't be appointed to begin with, or the Congress should refuse to confirm him, or whatever. And he's limited by the doctrine itself. If a judge says, "Well, you know, the First Amendment means that I have the right to blow up a building in, as a political protest," that's obviously absurd. What do you now? Now people say, "Well, gosh, what are you going to do to stop the judge from from uh, issuing an absurd ruling like that?"
1: Well, the answer is the doctrine. I mean, there there is no better answer than
0: the doctrine. It's, that would just be an absurd ruling. And I think what we're, we're hoping for is that, that we can come up with some formula that will make judges into computers that will put out the right answer to any input instead of exercising human judgment. But judges rightly exercise human judgment. And their task is to take this question and answer it in the best way that will fit with the existing institutions and with the philosophical limits on their authority and so forth. And So the bottom line is you can't design a system that will avoid the crazy judge scenario, and I think that the legal world would be better suited to stop looking for that. We are far more in danger, far more in danger from legislative activism than from judicial activism. The judges are very limited in what they can do. Even the worst Supreme Court decisions have relatively less impact on our lives than the worst than the worst legislative decisions, Congress and the state legislatures violate our rights every minute
1: of every day in countless ways, not to mention the administrative agencies, the executive officials that violate our constitutional rights and thumb their nose at the Constitution often explicitly saying, oh no, the Constitution, that's for the judges to work out. I don't have to worry about the Constitution. When, I mean, Of course, every official should be bound by their constitutional
0: obligations. So I am I am far more worried about a about activist legislatures and activist presidents and activist agencies than I am about activist courts. And I would rather have a court that says no too often
1: than a court that says no never at all. All right. So let's talk about the um, source of law. You these legislators. Um, this is primarily a book that's concerned. It seems to me with far more with state level and local level permissions. Yeah. Uh, rather than federal. Uh, there's certainly a fair amount of federal that we have to abide by as well. Um, but uh, can you talk about this distinction in terms of the historical development of states versus the federal government in terms of how uh, the legislative sources of these permissions uh, developed over time? Yeah, you're,
0: you're right that it focuses primarily on the state level because most of our freedoms are actually taken away at the state level and people don't really pay as much attention to that because they're always turning on the news and seeing what the president or congress are doing. They don't pay as much attention to what goes on in their state capitals even though they the state governments still are the ones that are primarily responsible for things like building permits or occupational licensing laws or other kinds of restrictions on our freedom. Um, what has happened, there has been, of course, historically, this, this greater federal centralization and, and the growth of federal authority with the, the New Deal and the Great Society and these, these vast expansions of the federal programs. And to some extent, that ha- it implicates what I talk about in the book. So let's take, for instance, what's called the Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity. This is an, a kind of licensing law that restricts
1: Whether a business is allowed to start up, and I hasten to say I'm not making this up. These are laws that say you're not allowed to start a new business unless you get permission
0: from the existing businesses in that industry. So you can't start like a taxi company, for instance, without getting permission from all the existing taxi companies. This was actually the law at the federal level with a lot of industries, the airline industry, for example. In fact, technically speaking, it still is the law in the airline industry. It's just been scaled back a lot since the uh, late 70s, early 80s.
1: Let me – uh, can I interrupt you one second mm-hmm. about the certificates of need? Uh, that mm-hmm. reminds me of a very interesting and poignant story that you tell about the civil rights movement in Montgomery, Alabama. Right. Can you can you recount that story about the yeah, taxes? Yeah, so,
0: so I, I mentioned these laws say you have, have to, to get permission from the existing taxi companies before you can start a taxi business. Well, this has a very uh, interesting historical world impact. Uh, when Martin Luther King wanted to start up the, the Montgomery bus boycott – well, the biggest problem with running a bus boycott is that you have to get people to work in the morning if they're not going to use the buses. If you don't give them some alternative transportation route, they're going to eventually have to quit the boycott because they're going to have to get to work. And in fact, this problem had come up a couple times before King staged the Montgomery boycott. There had been attempted boycotts in, um, in Baton Rouge and I think one other place. Bef- and those had failed before King tried the Montgomery boycott. The, way, the reason it worked in Montgomery is because King was able to get the black churches in the area to organize a volunteer transportation network to take people to work in the morning in cars. And then every Sunday they would pass the plate to collect money to pay for the car maintenance, the tires, the gas. I mean, they're giving these, these car drivers are giving thousands of rides because they're having to make up for all the buses. Well, it turned out that the city fathers realized that what King was essentially doing was starting an unlicensed taxi company. So they threatened to shut him down for running a taxi company without a license. And in fact, they did shut him down. They eventually went to court and had King's alternative transportation network stopped by court order. And it was just by coincidence, sort of a a minor miracle, that that very same day, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its order finding that the bus segregation was also unconstitutional and stopping it. But because King had said that nobody would ride the buses until they were actually desegregated... The people had to walk for the last month or so of the boycott because they couldn't use the alternative transportation network. So here's a great example of how economic liberty and civil rights really held hands. Without being able to start up his own taxi company, King was really handicapped in his ability to protest segregation. It was really only luck that ensured that 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 boycott worked. Right. When it comes to federal licensing and uh, uh, federal restrictions on people's economic liberty, there were uh, pervasive certificate of public convenience and necessity laws like the ones that regulate taxes at the state level. They they existed at the federal level also until rather recently. In fact, they still exist in many circumstances, but there were restrictions, for instance, at at the federal level on moving companies, moving from one state to another. You had to get a license from the federal government. And There too, you couldn't get a license unless you basically got permission from the existing trucking companies. That was abolished in the late 70s, early 80s um, and that's why you saw a a tremendous growth in the moving industries in, in this country. So these laws do exist at the federal level. In fact, they, they uh, hospitals also, I should mention, these certificate of need laws, also to hospitals. You can't start a new hospital or even buy medical equipment in a lot of places without getting permission from the existing hospitals and clinics. And uh, until rather recently, that was a lot at the federal level also. That was also abolished in the early 80s. But a lot of states, I think about half the states, still have those kinds of requirements on the
1: book. So the problem that you're outlining is that um – Potential new competitors, new innovators, and entrants into a market, whatever that industry may be. And it could be something um, as complex uh, as um, engineering, perhaps, or uh, com- complex equipment, or as, in terms of skills, rather simple, as something like floral arrangements. Um, right. And so this um, has a deleterious effect, you argue, on – uh, our economy as a whole. That's right. I mean, the, I I don't draw. I'm not trying to draw a, a a clear line and say permit requirements are never a good idea. There are some cases where they are good ideas. They're just a lot fewer than people seem to think
0: the, the pla where where licensing requirements make sense is where a person is likely to harm other people that harm is really going to be severe and therefore and there's no way to fix it afterwards if it happens and therefore it makes good sense to make sure that a person knows what he's doing before he starts it so the best example is probably driver's licenses driver's license is a permission is a government permission to drive on a public highway and it makes perfect sense to require that because there are lots of traffic accidents. Traffic accidents have a very serious likelihood of killing people, and there's no way of bringing people back from the dead when they die in a car accident. So it makes sense. And a, a, license, a driver's license is a very simple system. It's objective. You have to prove that you can drive, and that's it. There's no favoritism involved. There's no lobbying or anything like that. Very simple matter. It may, you know, Obviously, nobody likes a DMV, but basically, it does what it's supposed to do, and it's a simple thing. That's where permits make sense. The problem comes when you have permits for things like a development that might harm the speckled gnat catcher or what it, whatever some endangered species might be, and then federal bureaucrats are in charge of deciding how much development is allowable and what kind of effects on the species might be, and these are t- sort of complicated uh, uh, calculations to make, and they're, they're not clear-cut guidelines. And when that happens and the government is in a position to demand a little payment in exchange from people in exchange for a permit, it's in a position to give favors to politically powerful people at the expense of people who aren't politically powerful. And it's in, it, worst of all, it's in a position to harm innovation and deter people from trying out new ideas, new kinds of businesses, new kinds of developments, what, whatever it might be, because you can't prove beforehand that some new idea is going to be a good idea.
1: And so um, you talk about the uh, certificates of need extensively, but then you also talk about another area which you, I think, alluded to in what you just said when you're talking about um, having to pay to play, so to speak, in terms of development, uh, zoning laws. And right. zoning laws are, of course, um, not just state, but they're also very local. And um, can you explain how zoning becomes a permission problem?
0: Yeah, so the, the idea behind zoning, originally
1: speaking, the
0: the myth that people believe is that the idea of zoning is to rationally plan how a city is going to develop so that you don't have you know, a dynamite factory built next to a kindergarten. That's, that's the image people have of zoning. In reality, zoning was invented as a way of keeping poor minorities out of white neighborhoods. And that, in fact, is what still happens, although it's done so in a euphemistic way. We, we use other kinds of terms like low income or we use other kinds of tricks like setback requirements so that it's impossible to build low income housing in an area. Instead, you can only build expensive, large houses on single lots that only wealthy or upper middle class people can buy. So there are all sorts of distortions caused by zoning. But zoning in reality does not lead to rational land use planning. It leads to political land use planning, and that can be rational, but it often isn't. Often what happens is zoning decisions are made by political deals or political lobbying or in the service of whatever loud group of people shows up at the city council meeting to protest, even if they are a very small minority in the community, they can often get their ways way because they're the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. So
1: zoning turns into a
0: tool where political officials can decide what neighborhoods should look like. And a lot of the time they use that for their own best interests. So very often a person goes in and applies for a permit to build and the government comes back and says, OK, you can have your permit, but you have to give us something in exchange, whether it be land or uh, money, cash on the barrelhead.  … or sometimes other kinds of rights. I did a case. I represented a client in a case in California some years ago where my client was forced to give up his right to vote in exchange for a building permit. So whenever the government is in a position to give people permission to do something, that means it's also in the permission to demand – in a position to demand something in exchange for that that authority.
1: And this raises one issue that um, goes back into constitutional history. Um, There's a famous case from the 1870s, 1873 called the Slaughterhouse Cases… And, um, that was a case where you had a, um, slaughterhouse operation in, uh, Louisiana that the city had decided, or I guess the state had decided they were going to move to the outskirts of the city because of, uh, health and safety concerns for the population within the densely populated city. And it was challenged, um, partly on, claim that the 14th Amendment, which had only been in existence for about five years at that point, that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment allowed something beyond um, what had generally been understood to be its application, which was the protection of the newly freed or recently freed slaves um, in, uh, in regard to what today we think of as an economic liberty argument. So, in terms of how zoning uh, is challenged, the Slaughterhouse case was famous for uh, rejecting the idea that there's a due process claim to economic liberty. Um, now, about 40 years later, um, you have the famous Lochner case uh, from uh, 1905 where the court upheld this, and it bats this idea back and forth about whether the due process clause uh, contains this argument or a right, I should say, for economic liberty. What do you think about that, Um, not just historically but in terms of the the arguments uh, that courts should entertain in regard to economic liberty? Well, they, they certainly should protect economic liberty as a fundamental human right, which of course it is, but I, I would have to
0: dispute um, some of your uh, descriptions of what happened in slaughterhouse. And What happened in the slaughterhouse cases was not just a simple decision to locate the slaughterhouses in another area. What happened was the state of Louisiana passed a law making it illegal to slaughter cattle except at one single privately owned abattoir, which just coincidentally enough happened to be owned by members of the state legislature. So th- it was not really a question of the location of slaughterhouses, which, of course, there had been eons of court cases that saying, of course, the government can say that slaughterhouses have to be in one particular area or another. There's a, in fact, there's a very famous case in the, in the Illinois Supreme Court just of, shortly before slaughterhouse called Chicago versus Rumpf that said exactly that. But what you can't do is under the guise of a legitimate protection of the people from pollution, or something, under the disguise of doing that, actually give a special monopoly, a special favor to a one single private company. I think everybody, for instance, would say it's perfectly legitimate for the government to have rules about car maintenance to make sure you don't drive down the street putting out a bunch of smog, but if the state of California were to pass a law that said you can only have your cars repaired at the Amco on Vine Street
1: that would obviously be just a handout to that particular business and that was what was going on in Slaughterhouse secondly the argument in Slaughterhouse wasn't about the due process clause but about the privileges
0: or immunities clause of the 14th amendment which the court basically erased from the constitution in that case the idea of of due process protecting economic liberty is not only much older and much more legitimate than that but in fact one of the earliest so-called economic liberty due process cases was Loan Association versus Topeka, which came out only a single year after the slaughterhouse cases was announced. But the earliest discussion of economic liberty and due process uh, is probably the oral argument in Dartmouth College versus Woodward in 1819, several decades before the slaughterhouse cases even. So I am a strong proponent of protecting economic liberty under the due process and privileges or duties clauses of the Constitution. I think economic liberty is a fundamental human right. It is one of the crucial rights that America's founding fathers sought to protect in the Constitution. It's one of the things that Thomas Jefferson meant when he referred to the right to pursue happiness. The right to pursue happiness, that phrase in the declaration comes from the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which was announced only a month before, that refers to our right to pursue happiness and to obtain property, and and to engage our our faculties and our abilities in earning a living for ourselves and our families. And I think that is a crucial part of what it means to be free. Certainly, it's central to what we call the American dream. And I do believe that courts have shirked their duty, betrayed their constitutional obligations by refusing to protect that right. I, I think things are getting better now, but I think there's a long way to go before we get to a position where every person has the same right. To start a business or take a job that uh, that our constitution promises them.
1: And so um, in terms of the institutional constraints on uh, zoning practices, whether it's the zoning law substantively or it's administration, you think that the courts have a real important role to play. Is that right? Definitely. Now, I, the, of course, the courts disagree. They, their position is uh, very
0: often they like to say we we don't exist to to hear zoning appeals. But on the contrary, I think they certainly exist to to hear zoning appeals because zoning laws very frequently deprive people of their right to use their property as they see fit and do so for reasons that are illegitimate. And I think that the that although these are this happens all the time. And that's the excuse courts give. They say, well, gosh, we wouldn't have time to hear all of these things. We wouldn't have time to decide all these cases. Yeah, that just shows just how pervasive the violation of our rights really is. And it's, it's shameful and it ought to, to stop. And again, people think, oh, my gosh, why then you would have chaos if people could build anything that they want to. Well, that's not true. We know, for instance, that Houston, Texas, a major city that has no zoning, uh, there's nobody going out there and, and causing all sorts of chaos and, and disaster in Houston. And if you look at, say, the, the zoning map of Manhattan today, it is every bit as chaotic and crazy as it was 100 years ago when zoning first started. It's a patchwork of uses that is not a rational system of planning. It's just that the decisions today are made on political basis instead of on the basis of what consumers and producers actually want. Now those decisions are made by politicians
1: instead of people. That's the only difference,
0: and that's why I think zoning laws are typically a bad idea.
1: And I assume that if uh, the courts did take a much more active approach to um, entertaining zoning cases, the the argument would be that it's not a static uh, condition. In other words, the the localities and states would respond by not enacting as much zoning if they know it's going to be struck down. Well, one certainly hopes so. For take Arizona, for example, uh, about ten years ago, Arizona passed an ballot initiative
0: called Prop 207 that protects people against the abuse of eminent domain and also requires the government to pay property owners just compensation when it passes laws that take away their property value, even if the government doesn't come and actually take the land. And it's been 10 years, and Arizona is a flourishing place. There is no, you know, there's no blood running in the streets because of the eradication of zoning laws or something like that. No, the zoning laws weren't eradicated. People are still regulating property use to protect public safety. It's just that now the government has to think about the cost it's imposing on people and decide whether that's worthwhile, whereas previously, and, in, and what still goes on in most states is, zoning officials think that zoning is free. They think that they can take away property value with impunity and
1: i just think think that's a a bad bad idea idea. another uh area of um legislative and regulatory activity that you review is um at uh, colleges in terms of yes means yes um in regard to sexual activity um can you explain what you're talking about there in terms of uh, (laughs) prior restraint
0: Yes. So this this is one part of the the book where I'm kind of trying uh, a bit of a radical argument, and that is, uh, you know, a lot of college campuses have been passing these rules. In fact, California passed a law that says that um, if a person –
1: well, basically, it presumes
0: people who have had sex – Students on college campuses presumes them guilty of rape until they prove otherwise. They have to prove that they rec- that they obtained affirmative consent from their partner or partners at every stage of sexual interaction, and the other party can revoke her consent at any time, and and can and basically it's up to you to prove that she didn't really so. Imagine that you, you know, you, you and your girlfriend go to bed, together one night you wake up the next morning and you lean over to kiss her, you have now committed sexual assault because you didn't ask her first whether you could kiss her. And the these carry serious penalties. I mean, expulsion from college can be a very serious penalty and since these are government colleges, we're talking about government punishment that ought to comply with due process of law. Well, I'm arguing in the book that this is basically like a prior restraint rule being applied to sex that presumes you guilty until you prove that you are innocent. And, of course, we've for centuries as law, the memory of man runneth not to the contrary, as the lawyers say. The rule has always been the opposite. It's always been innocent until proven guilty. And that ought to be the rule because especially rape laws have been abused terribly in the past to punish and abuse unpopular minorities. I mean, that was the way in the South when a black man could be executed for literally for looking at a white woman the wrong way because she could then bring a false charge of rape against him. And there are these horrifying cases in our history. And I really worry about us moving back in that direction by disregarding the rules of due process and presuming people guilty of sexual assault until they prove otherwise.
1: And so What would be – in regard to the yes is yes uh, rules, what would be the remedy? In other words, is it a rights remedy uh, or a claim, I should say, that's made in court? Because sometimes these are problems that are administrative. They're not even brought to the civil courts. Um, And so what would be the remedy aside from a wholesale change of viewpoint on the part of college administrators? I think think it has has to be that that change of viewpoint viewpoint because I don't don't think that
0: college – faculty should be or, – or, or administrators should be in the business of policing rape at all. That's a matter for the police and the courts. That's why we have police in the courts. The, the idea of, of having these disciplinary tribunals in the colleges handle these cases seems absurd to me, and I think, they, I think they should be completely abolished, and the entire matter should be dealt with by the criminal law as it has been for centuries.
1: Right. Okay. So – I mean, you know, violent crime on college campuses is definitely not a new thing. It's been around since there have been colleges, which is about a thousand years. And that's always been dealt with by the
0: ordinary criminal and civil laws. And I think that's, that's the way it
1: ought to be. And so at the end of the book, um, you make a few recommendations about how to confront this uh, permission problem. And um, you mention. Uh, Tocqueville and his argument regarding the power of the state in shaping us can you expand upon that and then we'll talk about some of the solutions that you recommend
0: yeah Tocqueville has this wonderful and famous passage in democracy in america where he talks about how government takes everybody into its into its hands and although it doesn't it doesn't brutalize them it still sort of tyrannizes over them softly and turns people into sheep and the government is their benevolent shepherd and i fear that we are very much going in that direction with administrative law, and I consider administrative agencies to be the, the number one threat to constitutional government in this country. We, we're, and this is something that conservative or libertarian scholars have paid a lot of attention to, but I think liberal uh, and, and progressive people need to pay attention to it also because we're talking about a very undemocratic provision of our political system. This is the administrative agencies are unelected people who are not answerable to the voters and not really realistically answerable even to elected officials. A lot of these agencies are so protected that you can't even really fire the, the people who staff them. And these are agencies that are writing, essentially writing law, investigating infractions of the law and punishing people for violations of the law and depriving people of the right to due process in these administrative hearings. So I think it's a serious threat and everybody across the spectrum should be worried about it.
1: What we can do about it,
0: well, I'm not trying to say that permits are never a good idea. There, As I said, there, things like driver's licenses make perfect sense. The problem is that, that it, it's a very slippery slope. Once you start saying, well, anything that could possibly harm people, you have to get government permission before you do that thing. Well, everything could possibly harm people. And – As I give some silly examples in the book of some of the extreme arguments that have been made, people are arguing that you should have to get government permission before you have children. There's even a philosopher out there who has argued that you have to get government permission before you treat children well – because treating them well creates an inequality, and the government shouldn't allow any kinds of inequality without government permission. So before you send your kid to a private school to get a better education, you have to get government permission. These are the kinds of arguments, arguments that are being taken seriously in, in the colleges and universities. So I, my argument is basically one that says, look, let's take a step back and say permit requirements should be the last option. There are all sorts of other better ways to regulate and protect public safety and and respect people's freedom that don't harm innovation and don't give government this dangerous power over us.
1: So what would be the primary institution uh, that would challenge this? For example, um, is it the legislative branch wherein you – have to make appeals and persuade people that the permission approach or the precautionary approach is actually harmful. That sounds like a tough task politically, I think. Uh, Or is it the courts where you have to start to change doctrine, Um, things like the famous Chevron deference doctrine, wherein agencies get a great deal of leeway in terms of their interpretive power uh, regarding statutes are those the kinds of changes that need to be made I, I I agree that you're probably arguing all of the above, but what do you think the most politically palatable and likely well that's a great question as a lawyer of course i'm sort of biased in favor of going to court, but it, I think you're right it has to be all all of these um, all of the above and
0: with the legislative thing, remember, I, as I said, a lot of these, most of these restrictions are at the state level, and people, I think, underestimate the opportunities that states give us. At the Goldwater Institute, where I work, one of our main focuses is the idea of using state constitutions and state law to protect our freedom when the federal government has failed to do so. And we've come up with several innovative ways of doing this that apply to the permit requirement. For instance, we drafted legislation that prohibits any Arizona Uh, regulatory agency from imposing new restrictions on economic freedom uh, unless they're absolutely necessary to protecting public health and safety. I think the legislature needs to take take back its power from these administrative agencies in just that way. We in fact have drafted a new proposal called the Right to Earn a Living Act that protects people's economic freedom against abusive licensing rules and other restrictions on their economic opportunity. I think when there there is a role for licensing, but it, as I said, it should be at the bottom of the pile. The uh, private uh, certification rules should be uh, are a better option. You know, go have have these private companies or these private agencies, private um, uh, trade associations, review whether a person is qualified or not, and then let the consumer decide. In fact, the White House, the Obama White House, issued a report just this past summer, saying, making just that argument, saying that's that's a better route than licensing laws that prohibit economic freedom. So I think legislatures do need to take their power back and eliminate as much as possible these permit requirements. The costs of the permission society are impossible to measure because they take the form of the possibilities, the opportunities, the wealth that is never created and that never comes about.
1: There's a famous line from the poet John Greenleaf Whittier who said, uh, the, of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been.
0: The costs of the Permission Society are what might have been, the businesses that might have been created, the options that may have might have been made available to us that never come about because the permit requirements are too burdensome or the uh, the entrepreneur looks at the, at all the paperwork he's going to have to fill out before he can try it and says it's just not worth it or whatever. We can never measure those costs. And so we have this illusion that permit requirements are a good idea because we never see what,
1: what might have been. The book is The Permission Society, How the Ruling Class Turns Our Freedoms into Privileges and What We Can Do About It. We've been joined by its author Timothy Sandifer, and thank you, Timothy, for joining us on New Books in Law podcast. Thank you so much.